Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Well, this morning is all about ministry and getting involved in ministry. Uh, who all's called to be ministers? Oh, we're off to a good start already. This is going to be good. We're taking a, a little, uh, going to be a two-week break from our series that we've been in on uh, walking through the Word, uh, but we're going to get back into that. But today is our annual Ministry Emphasis Sunday. The church exists today, not just Calvary Temple, the church of Jesus Christ. It exists because people are involved in ministry. If people were to cease their ministry involvement, the church would cease to exist because the church is people, right? The church, the truth is that the church is not this building. You know, if, the, if this church ceased to exist, this building wouldn't disappear. You know, it would uh, get sold and maybe become a the world's largest Chick-fil-A, or who knows what might happen to this building. I don't, it's just a building, right? It's not the church. The people, you guys, all of us, we are the church, amen? This building is just a ministry tool that helps church happen. All over the world, there's churches that happen every week, just like we do, but they don't, they don't have a building like this. They might be in a tent, they might be under a tree. I've visited churches in Africa, and their church, that's where the gathering was. It was like under a big tree so that if it started to rain, it, uh, they didn't get quite as wet. How many of you are thankful for this incredible building we have? That's a real blessing from God, right? But it's not the church. So we are the church, and because the church is really just the people, we all have to take ownership in the church, or the church ceases to exist. Now, when defining the church, a common verse that ministers often, uh, oftentimes reference, I've heard it a hundred times or more in my life, Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus has gathered his disciples together and he's explaining to them that the church is about to be born. And he said these words. He says, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me see your hand if you've ever heard that verse quoted. See gobs of you. That is a very, very interesting verse right there. And we're going to break that down this morning because it's a verse that I, ha I myself have a lot clearer understanding of now than before I uh, was blessed by being able to take a trip to the Holy Land. It's such a, if you, we need to put together a CT church trip to the Holy Land because I'm telling you, once you see all of these things that you've been reading about throughout your life, it just becomes so real and alive. And this verse uh, notwithstanding, that's for sure. The, the disciples had been walking with Jesus for almost three years at this point. Jesus knew that his time of training these disciples and mentoring these men was very quickly coming to a close. 
In fact, Jesus, at this point, when he said those words, he was right at about three weeks away from his crucifixion on a cross. And so he took his disciples to this place just outside the city of Caesarea Philippi for what was going to be one of his last teaching sessions with these men. Now, on my trip to the Holy Land, they took us to this very place, just outside Caesarea Philippi. And I had the privilege that morning of uh, leading a Bible study uh, of the group that we were traveling with. And uh, that's me sitting on a rock, but what you don't see is on this side are all the people. Just take my word for it. There were people there. (laughs) It wasn't a staged picture. Hey, take my picture. I'll act like I'm doing something, you know. So I had the privilege of of leading the Bible study that morning. We all had, many of us that were pastors in the group took turns doing morning Bible studies. But I tell you, I found it a real uh, honor and privilege that it fell to me to lead that Bible study that day in this place where uh, they, they think is right in the spot, if not the spot, where Jesus would have gathered his disciples for this teaching. And you can see some water flowing behind me there. This next picture was taken from right behind where we were doing this morning Bible study. That water comes out of the base of, see that big rock wall there at the top of the picture with that big cave entrance going in, that water flows out from underneath that huge rock mountain or cliff, and that is the headwaters of the Jordan River. Right there, you are looking at the exact uh, headwaters where the Jordan River literally begins right there. And here's another view of the base of that rock cliff as we were uh, walking around it. This area uh, had been the center for Baal worship at this time when Jesus had his disciples there. And there was a large temple that was built at the entrance to that big cave opening that you see where people would go in, they would worship Baal and the fertility uh, god Pan, They would offer up sacrifices of all sorts, including their own children at times, to Baal. And so here's a slide of what it would have, might have looked like during the time of Jesus. That big temple was kind of backed right up to that big hole, that cave in the side of that mountain. And off to the right, if you can look closely, maybe you can see these three arched cutouts in the face of that stone mountain where there were statues of Baal and Pan. I've got a close-up of those arched cutouts. There, that's a reason. Those things are still there. After 2,000 years, those cutouts are still there where these statues of Pan and Baal were in those little cutouts there in that rock cliff. And so this city of Caesarea Philippi was a city of unbelievable evil and Satan worship, uh, which they at the time referred to as Baal worship. And down through the years, I'm sure that many people who have studied the Bible maybe have wondered, why did Jesus, why did he bring his disciples 
this close to his leaving the earth? Why did he bring him to this place of final teaching, uh, to this horrible place of, of evil and hedonism? And uh, it was just, it was considered the center of Satan worship. Why would he take him there? Jesus took this opportunity to give his disciples a sort of a final exam, you might call it. And he gathered them all around. We know it was somewhere near the vicinity of where we had that Bible study that morning. And they're all sitting there, and he, he asked this question. He said, this is after being with them for three years. He said, who do people say that I am? And this was their response. And they said, some one of the prophets. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this verse, that is such an interesting verse, and I believe it has been misunderstood for hundreds of years. For centuries now, the Roman Catholic Church has taught that Jesus was saying that Peter was the rock that he was going to build his church on. And I have heard that teaching in the Assemblies of God churches many times when I was younger growing up. Because he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I've heard that teaching. I've heard this teaching. Evangelicals have taught for decades and decades that Peter's confession that Jesus was in fact the Son of the living God, that that was the rock. That confession was the rock upon which the church would be built. But this morning, I want to suggest to you that it was neither of these things. Take another look at this picture. What do you see there? Rock. I mean, and when you are there, that is all there is around that entire area. What you're walking on is rock. The sides are rock. It's just rock everywhere. And I would suggest to you this morning that Jesus had brought his disciples to this giant place of rock that housed this temple where all forms of, of sexual and perverted uh, forms of evil took place a place where people by the thousands came to worship uh, these satanic gods, this place that literally represented all that was evil and worldly and hedonistic, he brought them there to tell them that he was going to build his church right smack dab on top of this hunk of rock, right in the midst of all this evil in the world. See, listen to it once again. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, I am suggesting to you this morning that when Jesus said, on this rock, he's referring to 
in this world, in this evil, sinful world, we're going to build a church right in the middle of this thing. Amen? And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Now here, this is something that's also interesting in many of the teachings I've heard uh, in my life down through the years. Uh, this next slide, we go back to this picture of these arched cutouts where these uh, statues of Baal and Pan were placed for people to worship. In biblical days, those recesses uh, cut out of that side of the mountain, they were referred to as the gates of Hades, those little arch things where they had their gods. They referred to them as the gates of Hades. Hades, another word for hell, Jesus is saying that the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against his church. But I think that for centuries, I know in the teachings I've heard as I've come up through the church all my life, I don't know if we have always properly grasped the meaning of that verse because uh, throughout history and even today to a large extent, uh, gates, when we talk about gates, gates are an instrument of security, right? How many of you have anything that involves a gate. In your house, where you place, wherever, you, you deal with gates. What is the purpose of the gate? Why is the gate there? To keep people out, right? If we didn't care where people are going, we wouldn't have any gates, right? Today, and all throughout history, gates are there. The purpose of gates are to keep people out. Gates were very, very important during biblical days especially. Every major city had a gate, a literal gate that opened and closed. And so in those days, you know, you just couldn't go waltzing into a city like you can today because they all had these big gates. And I think that for centuries, people have interpreted that verse, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. Correct? Tell me if you can relate to this. But the teachings that I heard for many, many years, it made it sound to me like the powers of evil and sin are going to be constantly attacking the church, but they won't be able to defeat it. See, I'm getting all these amens, but I'm about to turn the tables on you, okay? That's what... I was always taught that, you know, this, I'm going to build this church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. And we always took that to mean because they're going to be attacking us, but they're not going to win. Is that, is that, we all there? So they're saying evil and sin are always going to be on the offensive, attacking the church, but the church is going to have to stand strong and defend against that. And it conjures up this kind of mental picture in my mind is the church being this giant fortress up on this hill and the fortress is being attacked from every side and we as Christians, we're all huddled up inside the fortress and we're just hoping and praying that the walls aren't going to crumble in under the pressure of these attacks. Anybody relate to that teaching? Well, thats I don't think that's what Jesus was saying at all here. I think that is the exact opposite of what Jesus was saying. Jesus said that it's the gates of hell that won't prevail against the attacks of the church or the surge of the church, in other words. Now, you remember that gates are a tool of security and defense, right? We've established that. 
Gates are there to protect you when you're being attacked, right? So here's what that means. We, as the church, we are the ones who are supposed to be on the offensive against sin and evil. We're the ones who are supposed to be storming the gates of evil and winning victories. We're not the ones who are just supposed to be huddled up here inside our our little church fortress hoping that the walls aren't going to withstand the attacks of outside evil. Are, are, Are we getting this together? So can you see how this whole thing has really been kind of backwards for a long time? The church, we're supposed to be a training center to build up soldiers in the army of God to go where? Out. Outside of these walls and start winning battles over evil in this world. We're supposed to be on the offensive, but in so many cases, we've just gotten it backwards. We have built these very beautiful fortresses. We call them church buildings. And we all gather together and we talk about Jesus and we study his word and we keep ourselves safe from the outside world. All those bad guys out there. We're all safe in here, right? Boy, right outside those doors, oh, bad guys. We have... Well, don't take this wrong, but I have to say it. We've built Christian schools and Christian universities so that our kids don't have to come in contact with the sinful world. And it seems that in a lot of cases, our Christian churches, our our schools and universities, to some extent, have become shelters and fortresses against the onslaught of the enemy. Now, in other words, we have, we've been on the defense when God wants us to be on the offense. But as I said, don't take me wrong. I, I know that a lot of our church kids are in Christian schools. And I have no problem with that. I'm just saying this. Uh, we need to make sure that our Christian schools, our universities, are training up our young people to get out into the world and make a difference for the kingdom of God and not just using that as a shelter from the world. We're never going to experience any victories unless we get outside the walls of the fortress, right? Otherwise, we're just huddled in here hoping for the best. So here's the truth. Our nation is in a horribly ungodly and evil state right now. Did I just shock anyone? We all know that, right? And so, why is it our nation, why is it that our nation is in such turmoil and so ungodly? We all know the answer. It's those lousy, ungodly liberals who for the past 50 years have been making laws that have taken God right out of our church and our everyday life and even out of our Constitution. That's who's to blame, right? Those liberals. That's what we church folks love to say and believe. I hear it all the time. But I'm going to tell you something right now that you might find shocking. I'm going to tell you something. It may even offend you. But I'm going to say it anyway because we've already received the offering this morning. (laughs) There's nothing you're going to be able to do about it at this point. 
The reason our nation and our world is in such an ungodly state is because for decades and decades, while sinful and and oftentimes immoral men have been making our laws and setting our policies, Christians have been huddled together behind the protection of our walled, our little walled fortresses, just hoping that the walls are going to continue to withstand all these horrible attacks from the enemy instead of being out in the world letting our voices be the ones that are heard. We've been on the defensive the whole time that God promised us victories if we had been on the offensive. And this is what it's brought us to. So this morning... Right now, we could all stand and we could just shout hallelujahs and shout out our beliefs in God to the top of our voices. And I'm telling you, not one, not one single sinner that might be walking on the sidewalk past the front of our church would hear a thing. The church needs to be taking the world by storm. Not huddling together inside these four walls, hoping to withstand the storm. That's the deal. This building, we need, to, we need to serve as a training center for soldiers in the army of God. Amen? We need to be a center for sending people into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we can train up people to have the confidence and the faith to go out into the world and make a stand for these godly principles instead of just uh, confessing our faith when we have the protection of these walls... God, he's already promised us that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. That's what that verse is saying. We are going to win victories, amen? So the big question then in all, it becomes this. How, or how do we try to turn this thing around? And I say we do it by taking ownership in the church. Now please notice, uh, I didn't say by taking ownership of the church. People have tried to do that for centuries. It hasn't worked yet. The church belongs to Jesus. No one's ever going to take ownership of the church, but each and every one of us can take ownership in the church. You can take ownership by, by you, or you take ownership by buying into something, right? You invest in it. And God has given each of us three very vital commodities in this life. People all over the world invest in commodities. They literally buy into it, right? And that's what we have to do as, as a church body. God has given us these three very vital commodities but we have to invest them properly. The three commodities God gives each of us, time, energy, and finances. We all have these three commodities. Some may have more than others in the area of finances, but God, whatever we have, it's there because God gave it to us. We all have the same amount of time some people have a little more energy than others, but how many of you don't have the energy you had 20 years ago? But we've all got some, right? 
It's still a commodity that we have. And I'm saying that if every Christian would invest these three commodities the way God wants us to, we could storm the gates of hell and they cannot prevail against us. His word has already given us that promise. So how do we take ownership in the church, right? How do we do it? We take ownership in the church by getting involved in ministry. That's what buys you ownership in the church. That's how you invest in his kingdom. And those of you that have been here as long as I have, you've heard me say a hundred times in the last 17 years that each and every one of us are called to be ministers. But here are some factual statistics that prove why the church hasn't been storming the gates of hell. Here's the truth. The statistics nationwide point out that in the average church across America, regardless of uh, denomination, regardless of size, whether it's a church of 300 or a church of 3,000, on average, we're talking averages, on average, 25% of the people in that church do 75% of the ministry. That's it. On average, one-fourth of the people are doing three-fourths of the ministry. And people wanna, would wonder why the church isn't storming the gates of hell. We have a reduced workforce here. But it shouldn't be reduced, right? So in other words, 70% are there for the show, 25% are there for the go. I don't know whose quote that was, but I'm using it because I, I thought, that's well, pretty good. 75% there for the show, 25% there for the go. Now, as a pastor, I'm incredibly grateful to know that CT Church, we're well above that average. But we're not at 100%. We're still quite a ways off of 100%, but we're well over 25%. And believe me, Janet and I, our, our, our entire staff, we are very grateful for that. But what could we be doing if we had 100% of the people investing in ministry, being used of the, of the Lord to make a difference in the world? Wow, it, it's mind-boggling to think about, right? And so a little self-evaluation, and I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again, and you'll probably hear it again sometime else down the road because I love this illustration. It makes us stop and think, really think about how are we invested into our church. This little question or illustration is titled, What kind of church would my church be if every member were just like me? Could there be a nursery or a children's program? If everyone were like me, would there even be a need for discipleship classes? Do you ever go to a discipleship class? If the answer is no, then we could say the answer to that question is nope, there wouldn't be any need. If everyone were like me, would there even be a need to receive offerings? If everyone were like me, could we afford to send missionaries out around the world? 
If everyone were like me, would our church be a praying church and a church that reads His Word? If everyone were like me, would people that visit the church ever come back a second time? If everyone were like me, would people actually listen to the sermon or just mostly look at their phones? I saw a few heads come up. Busted. <laughs> if everyone would, were like me, would anyone actually ever say amen or would it be a real quiet church? If everyone were like me, would we cancel services for a little bad weather or a sporting event? If everyone was like me, would we all be encouraged to sit down during worship and, and you know, maybe cut it back to just a couple of songs? If everyone were like me, would our church be an encouraging place or a place of gossip and murmuring? Boy, I wonder, what kind of a church would my church be if every member were just like me? That's ponderous, isn't it? I like that word, ponderous. I feel smarter when I say that word. Now here's another truth this morning. Every ministry in the church will help prepare and train someone to go out into the world. Every ministry will. It doesn't make any difference whether it's mowing the grass or, or preaching from this pulpit. Whatever ministry you're involved in, it results in raising up people to be soldiers and witnesses that God calls them to be. It absolutely does. Your ministry might be teaching a class, maybe holding a baby in the nursery, being a greeter or an usher, uh, working with the safety team or the courtesy team that's hauling people and kids and our seniors back and forth between buildings. Man, that's important. Maybe your ministry could be working in the youth group or in children's ministry. We're going to hear a lot more about children's ministry next Sunday. It might be praying with people in these altars or on a prayer chain. Your ministry could be picking up a person who needs a way to get to church. Your ministry could involve fixing toilets around here. And if you don't think that's important, I'm telling you right now, if we strung several weeks together where none of these toilets worked, we'd lose a lot more people than if I strung together a whole bunch of clinker sermons. I'm just telling you, every ministry is incredibly Important. Every one of these ministries work together to bring people closer to God, to give them confidence to go outside of these four walls, making a difference in the world. The church will storm the gates of hell when its members develop this attitude that says, you know what? It's not up to someone else. It's up to me. I'm telling you. We have to stop. We have to get rid of that attitude. Well, I see a problem, and you know what? Somebody needs to do something about that. I see, a, a, I see a shortcoming in the church. I can't believe nobody is doing anything about it because I notice it is as plain as the nose on your face, and yet I don't see anybody doing anything about it. 
You know, some people see a need or a problem in the church, and their first response is to complain about it. I'm not saying it's any of you, but I've seen it. When here is the real truth, you ready for this one? When God reveals a need to you, it's usually because he wants you to help meet that need. Now, if people would really grasp a hold of that, I'd get very few complaints about anything. Pastor, you know, here's what we really need in church. Is that right? You see that need? Fantastic. God must be speaking to you. Go for it, man. Let's, let, let's, let's formulate a plan here. See, when we see a problem or a shortcoming, any kind of issue in the church, the worst thing we can do is just complain about it. That just makes the problem worse, right? What God wants you to do is help be a part of the solution, and that is why he's revealed this to you in the first place. Just something to think. I threw that in for free. How many of you are glad you came, got up and came to church this morning? I threw that in for free. So I want to close with this scripture on our 2018 Ministry Awareness Sunday. It's found in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. There your heart. Thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Most of you have heard that Scripture many, many times through your life, but I, I challenge you this morning. If you're not currently involved in, in ministry here at CT, or you feel God calling you to a deeper calling into ministry, man, just as soon as we're finished here this morning, go over to the Family Life Center and just check out some of these great ministry opportunities that are, man, they're ready and waiting. Check out these different ways that you can become a part of a church that is advancing the kingdom of God rather than just gathering in a building hoping the walls aren't going to cave in. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.